You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. It feels like forever since I've been here. I've been away the last two Sundays. And uh, man, I heard, uh, wow, Leonard that missed this epic moment uh, when Leonard, who loves to conclude so much, did it like 15 times. Uh, but thank you, brother, for, for, for your word, and Nate for sharing last week. And so we're uh, continuing in this series where we're looking at basic concepts of our, of our shared Christian faith as summarized in the Apostles' uh, Creed, which wasn't written by the Apostles, but summed up what the Apostles taught in their firsthand uh, ministry uh, of Jesus. And today, let's get into one a concept from the creed that's easy to miss because it's only in the creed in adjective form. It's the elusive notion of holy, holiness. And, and near the end of the creed, we come to, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, then the holy universal church. And then as Nate unpacked for us last week about the communion of saints, and in the Latin, it uses the word sanctus, the holy people of God. So uh, Holy Spirit, Holy Universal Church, Holy Ones. Therefore, we're confessing that God is holy. We're confessing that the church he created is holy, and we're confessing that those individual people, both living and dead, who come to relate to God are made holy. So there you have it. Holy, holy, holy. Anytime in ancient scripture when something was repeated three times, that's like highlighting, italics, underlying. It means it's way, way important. Only two two things in all of scripture are repeated three times. Holy, 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 and woe, woe, woe uh, to to persons uh, under the judgment uh, of God. And like every week, we're, we're turning, and by way of uh, attribution, we're, we're really relying on a series put together by uh, Dr. Tim Keller, sort of the framework that we're following uh, for all this. And in it, we're, we're looking at the writings of the Apostle uh, John, St. John, each week, both in his gospel, his letters, and in uh, Revelation. And so this, this morning's passage... Uh, this concept of holiness is oftentimes confusing or obscure or carries with it some kind of negative vibe. So exactly what does it mean? What are we talking about? And like every week, we're looking at John's writings to guide us. And today's passage doesn't have the word holy or holiness, but instead it gives us a crystal clear picture of holiness in the life of a human being. The story picks up uh, during a banquet held in Jesus' honor, or maybe was it in Lazarus' honor? Uh, The pronouns let you conclude either way, but to dine with somebody that used to be dead, that would be pretty impressive. Uh, To dine with the one that raised him from the dead, you you know, you'd want a ticket. You'd want to get on the other side of the velvet rope for this uh, thing. We pick it up in John chapter 11. And he's performed this climactic uh, miracle, raising his friend 
uh, Lazarus uh, from the dead. The banquet's held at somebody's house in the village of Bethany, and anybody who's everybody is, everybody who's anybody is there. Lazarus is there, kind of star of the show. Uh, Martha, her sister, very much in character. She's, you know, large and in charge. She, remember, she was the really practical one, and evidently she's, uh, you know, serving as the hostess of this whole thing. And then in comes her other sister, also the other sister of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Mary. And Mary does something in the account we're going to look at that is so unbelievably scandalous and outrageous and confoundingly amazing all at the same time. And what we're seeing here are four things that teach us what it means to be holy. Holiness in a human being is unconditional. It's scandalous. It's intuitive. And it's beautiful. Let's, let's just unpack these real quick. Unconditional. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard. Just kind of a cool word, a fun word, nard. Uh, in those days, when you went to a social event, any gathering of persons, uh, it was normal for you to dab on a little bit of perfume uh, uh, or ointment, to uh, fragrant ointment, uh, why? Well, this is years and years before, you know, antiperspirant deodorant. And it's years before showers and running water. Uh, it was, uh, they, well, and they lived in a very hot Arab, arid client, climate. So you can imagine, can't you? Think about it. I mean, the place was ripe. Now, don't give me this jazz of, well, you know, body odor is really from all of the preservatives and the food that we eat. And it's, you know, I lived in Africa for a number of years. They don't have preservatives in their food. Uh, I, you know, we, and let's just face it. They had body odor that would wilt garlic. Therefore, it was customary when you went in to any kind of gathering of people, a festive occasion, any one of the feasts uh, and festivals that happened in the regular calendar year, regardless of the culture, that you dabbed on a little of this perfumed ointment. Every household had at least a little bit, and a little bit is key because this stuff was expensive. Uh, even today, nard, drawn from the, get it, it's called the skunk nard plant. And not skunk because it stinks, but skunk because its aroma is so pungent, so uh, permeating. And it comes from the east and the Himalayas and India and China. It's way from the east. It made it over the Silk Road to get there. It was imported. Uh, and it, that's why it was, it, was, it was so expensive. And that's why it was saved only for special occasions. And a little dab behind each year was a thing. But now she unpacks a pound of the stuff. And that's completely different. And the reactions to Mary's actions are loud and immediate. If we look at the same account in Mark chapter 14, it says, they rebuked her harshly. And boy, is that an understatement. Because the Greek words for rebuke harshly means to scream in anger or to bark like a drill sergeant. In fact, it's the same word set used when Jesus commanded 
Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Come out! I mean, he's, he's yelling through death. He uses the voice, and it's the same kind of uh, force of speaking that's used here when they start yelling at Mary. Because what she did was so unbelievably outrageous, so embarrassing, so socially unacceptable to the people who were there, that so unthinkably offensive that the whole room goes ballistic and starts yelling at her. What exactly did she do? She did three things. First, and this one we get from, from Mark's account, she broke the box. She, she didn't carefully unseal it. She broke it. It's implying she made it unusable anymore. She busted the box open. And it's holding this, this substance a little bit like um, now you can get in a jar a coconut oil, right? And it gets kind of firm when it's, but body temperature it turns oily. It's, it's sort of like that. She busts it open, and uh, that's not just a dab. It's, it's all coming out. When you break a bottle of perfume, there's no, you can't, can't, it's all committed. Now, the reason it's so astounding to the people there was it was such an expensive thing. And Judas even says it cost a year's wages, so automatically you know how much this would have cost you. Unless these were unbelievably wealthy people, unless Mary, Martha, and Lazarus you know, were trust fund babies of a huge wealthy family, this could have easily been the single most expensive possession the family owned. And Mark tells us it was in an alabaster, carved stone alabaster box, making it almost certainly a precious heirloom that had been passed down perhaps for generations. So therefore, it speaks about being part of the family's financial security. So this moment is like her blowing your 401k college, kids' college fund and your equity in your home all at once. They're yelling, lady, you're crazy. And the next thing, they start yelling, lady, you've lost your mind because she put it on his feet. In a time and a place where dealing with the feet was considered humiliating. A little bit more about that in a minute. You would never demean somebody by insisting that they do anything to your feet. And third, she wiped it with her hair. She let down her hair in public, which was a complete scandal. They yelled at her, and Jesus says, leave her alone, because Jesus understood exactly what she meant, which is, in all three of these, she's saying, 
I'm not going to respond to Jesus Christ with any conditions. I follow. I give myself. I commit myself to him unconditionally. That's what she did. She pours it all out. She's saying, I'm all in no matter the cost. She's not saying, well, okay, I'll follow you only as long as it's convenient or inexpensive. She's saying, I'm willing to give you everything. I'll follow you no matter the cost. But when she goes to his feet, she's going even further. The feet back then were taboo. Not even slaves. There was regulations that you couldn't insist on slaves doing anything to your feet. It was beneath the lowest of the castes. Feet were left to your own to deal with. And that's the reasons why, by the way, in John 13, they're going to be absolutely freaked out when Jesus washes their feet. And it's hard for us to imagine in the time of pedicures, but in Jesus' day, the feet were untouchable to anyone but their owner. And to this day, in Middle Eastern cultures, if you show somebody the bottom of your foot, it's the exact same cultural translation has given somebody double finger, right? It was wishing them cursed, painful death. It, was, it, it meant whatever you just thought, that's exactly what it meant. And her actions were saying, look, I know servants in our culture have rights, but not me. These are the things you can't ask them to do, but I give up that right. I'm not going to follow you conditionally. I give up my right of self-determination. There's nothing about me that you can't have. And then third, and most amazing of all of them, is when she lets down her hair, she's taking it even Further. The rabbis at the time said that if a married woman unbound her hair in public, it was grounds for divorce. At the word level. <clears throat> That's the level of scandal that we're talking about when she let down her hair. When a woman unbound her hair, they said, this is the ultimate way of showing openness and tenderness and intimacy. This is something you would only do in private, not just in an in a amorous, sexual sort of way, but at home with just your loved ones and the door shut to let down your hair. Something done only in private in the most intimate life moments. That's what it meant then. So what Mary is saying with this scandalous gesture is not only am I going to give you everything I have, I'm not going to give it grudgingly because I have to, because there's some kind of rule. No, I'm going to give you 
everything. I'm going to give you control, and I'm going to enjoy giving you control. I love you. I'm not going to hold back my heart. I'm not going to, I'm going to give to you, in a sense, my will. I'm not going to place my deepest desires and deepest delights in my husband or my children or my parents or my work or anything else. And that's nothing short of amazing. Because look at the response when Mary does these things. And I believe one of the reasons why John focuses uh, out, leaves everybody out of focus and has in the middle of the frame uh, the reaction of Judas is to tell us a little bit more about him and teach us a little bit more about ourselves. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Here's the point. He's showing us that there are two options in life. You're either selling Jesus or you're sold out to Jesus. In other words, we're either using Jesus or we're being available to be used by Jesus. In the Old Testament, one of the really confusing things about this whole concept of holiness and holy is when it was talked about as applied to a thing. There were, in, in the, around the tabernacle, in the temple, there was all kinds of stuff. Holy furniture, holy pots and pans. I mean, the first time you read Leviticus or Numbers, it's really kind of weird. Holy furniture sort of blows your mind. Here's the holy pot. Over there's the holy chair. Here's the holy spoon. Here's the holy knife and fork. How can a pot be holy? Because when we think about holiness, right, right away, we think about some sort of inner uh, morality or purity or some behavioral sort of thing like that, but that's not primarily the meaning behind the word holy. The reason a pot or a piece of furniture could be holy was so it could be put in the temple and used only for worship. And there's where we can now see what it means for a person to be holy. It means to be completely set apart. In becoming a, a person growing in holiness, we need to ask ourselves, am I using God or am I sticking with God as long as he profits me, as long as it's not too costly to me, as long as I get some say in the whole thing? Do I serve him as long as he gives me inspiration, helps me with my problems, helps me with my self-esteem, helps me to get greater self-control? Am I using him to get to my goals or am I letting him use me to get to his goals? What it means I feel the same way. What it means 
to be holy is simply to say, no matter what he says, no matter who he sends, I'll not only obey him, but I'll work with my heart and I will obey him and I'll like it because I'll give him not just my will, but I give him my heart. And that's it. To approach Jesus Christ in holiness means to say, I'm not going to be able to ever have any kind of a relationship with you unless I settle this. Because if he is who he says he is, he's the unconditional one of unconditional importance, and I have to treat him as unconditional Lord of my life. Not just a one-time decision, an every day, every minute of the day conscious decision. Now, if you're somebody who sitting here thinking, you know, I'm not really sure about this whole Christianity thing, or if you're listening to the podcast, I, I'm just sort of... Uh, trying, exploring this and trying to figure out, you're, you are welcome here and you are safe here. We've all been exactly where you are. And the key question today is, are you even willing to come to him without any conditions? If you say no, I'm afraid you'll never find him. But if you're able to drop your conditions, if you can get to that place of just being willing to drop them, God will meet you. Ask him to help you with the conditions you've placed on him. He'll come to you. He'll find you. I guarantee it. So, all of that to say, holiness is completely unconditional. All in. Not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. Second, it's scandalous. Holiness is, <laughs> yes, truly scandalous. And this is where we get in trouble with religion. Back to the story. Who are the people that are rebuking her? The religious people. In the room. Religious people look at her and they're flipping out. Why? Mainly that thing with her hair. Religious people, religious people bow to God's feet. Religious people give of their worldly goods, but religious people never let down their hair. Why? Well, first of all, Letting down her hair shows that she's confident. Remember, in those days, a woman only let down her hair when she was at home, when she was with her family in very private intimacy. Religious people never have that home-like confidence before God. They're never, never, never like that because religion is always trying to earn God's blessing. 
And religious people are always trying to be good, always trying to do good, always wanting to do what's right, trying to do what's right, trying to earn it. And they're ashamed of being seen as weak and certainly vulnerable. So they're astounded when this woman, they're astounded at how she's so confident around Jesus that she's shattering the rules, including grabbing the first century cultural third rail and letting down her family around non-family. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. She only cares about what Jesus thinks. And to her, Jesus Christ is family. Religion, on the other hand, is always concerned about perceptions, the optics, the appearance, holding on to the acceptable standards, propping up the cultural mores, keeping the rules to bolster and shore up their standing in fulfilling them and looking like they're holy and sanctimonious rather than being truly holy. The people in the room just don't know anything about this kind of remarkable confidence she had with Jesus. But on the other hand, they don't know about this kind of intimacy with Jesus either. This letting down of her hair, it was completely foreign. Why they don't know anything about this level of intimacy with God is because if he's there at all, Their God is a remote God. He's a warlord, a tyrant, a rule maker and keeper and enforcer. That's the God of religion, but not the God of the gospel. What the gospel creates in a human heart is holiness, not religious fanaticism. We get more evidence of that from how Jesus reacts in the story. Take a look, verses seven and nine. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have always, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And man, we gotta tip our hat to the, to the translators here because you've really gotta wrestle with the language to get what this is trying to say. At first glance, it looks like he's saying, Who cares about the poor? And a lot of people in history have read it and taught it that way. And that's not what he's saying. Think about it. Jesus holds the poor in high regard. He's there for the poor. He serves the poor. He talks about and weeps for the poor. So for Jesus, the poor are incredibly important. And therefore, for him to take preeminence over the poor means he is unique. He is unique in his importance and his glory. In other words, he is assuming for himself the importance of the poor here. He's identifying with the poor. And he's also saying, look, she knows very soon I'm going to be buried. He says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
every time we meet Mary in the Gospels, where is she? She's at Jesus' feet, and there's a progression to the story. In Luke 10, we find Mary and Martha. Martha's frantically running around, a hot mess. Why? Because Mary's at Jesus. Martha's a hot mess because Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening intently to the things he's saying. The next time we see Mary in John 11, Lazarus has just died. And when Jesus shows up, Martha gets in his mustache yelling at him. If you'd been here, he'd be alive. I know he'll rise in the direction, but now he's dead. And Jesus has to calm Martha down, and he does so. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, Mary comes in saying the very same things. Master, if he'd been here, my brother would still be alive. But then what does she do? She throws herself at his feet. And what does Jesus do in response? He doesn't instruct her. He doesn't bawl her out. He doesn't rebuke her harshly. No. He weeps with her. Because he understands that Mary is just a little bit ahead of everybody else. She knows who he is. He doesn't have to tell her that he's the resurrection and the life. She gets it. Flash forward to our story with the perfume, and she's saying, Lord, I now realize the only way you could have raised Lazarus is because you're going to bury yourself. I realize the only way you could ever interrupt my funeral is to cause your own. I realize now this is not just words. If you're going to give us life, you're going to have to lose yours. I can't believe the sacrifice you are making, but I get it. This is where we have to come to terms. This whole holiness thing, it isn't earned. It comes from God. Jesus is going to do all of the work on the cross, not you. And therefore, you can be as confident as Mary when you're around God that you can let your hair down, literally, figuratively. So holiness is unconditional. It's scandalous. Next, it's intuitive. Real quick, and we'll be done. Intuitive. I, I, I struggled. It may be perceptual, but it's, it's Jesus' love has awakened her love. But not just that. She gets what he's doing, like I just said. What, that's the one thing that gives her the boldness and humility to do what she did. Just like you can know that you know down deep in your knower, she gets that she gets it down deep in her getter. We've all got a knower. We've all got a getter. And holiness comes from this getting it perspective, from becoming aware of something, that something is, that she is, he is not just her king, but Mary realizes he is her true kinsman, her true brother, her true bridegroom, the scripture describes it. I mean, how do you know How many of you here have ever been in love? Let me see your hands. Hold them up. Come on. All right. You can see if they need a nard when they hold up their arm. Right? All right. Put it down. 
How did you know you were in love? How'd I know, Tom? What a stupid question. How'd I know? Come on. How'd I know? It was the one thing your parents were right about. You'll just know. Because you know. Isn't that amazing? We come to planet Earth pre-wired with a thing inside of us that can know something we can't explain. Because if you could explain how you know you're in love, you will have bested Keats and Lord Byron and Shakespeare himself. You know. We have this ability to connect with something bigger and sweeper and deeper and wider and more glorious and fantastic, but we can't put it into words. We just know it. And that's what I'm trying to explain of this unconditional, scandalous, intuitive thing called holiness. Let's end with this. It's not only those three things. Holiness is also beautiful. Beautiful, not perfect. Growing in holiness, I mean, number one, yes, decision. Make it today. Decide that this is really an either or situation, nothing in between. Either we're using him or we're making ourselves available to be used by him. Will it be my will be done or thy will be done? It really is either or. And by the way, if you're just exploring this whole Christianity thing, please understand this from the beginning. This is hard. Christians are human beings. And we bring 100% of our humanity with us everywhere we go, including before the Lord. And human beings, as human beings, we struggle, we fail. We have seasons of lament and hurt and loss, and failure, and fatigue, and confusion. But Jesus gets that. Why? Because in the flesh, he was human too. And the Holy Spirit helps us on the never-ending road. We're going to cover, jump into that next week. Anyone who tells you that Christianity or any aspect of it is one and done simply doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, I was so drawn to Erica's heart when she described an end, but not really an end, but she knows there'll be an end. There'll be a day she'll say, I'm recovered, but it's a journey and maybe the rest of my life, but I know it'll be there. And we all know she's talking about maybe this side, maybe that side of eternity, but I know it'll be there. And you want a picture of holiness, there it is. Because holiness is not perfection. Do you think Mary was perfect from this point in the gospel on? She's perfectly loved, perfectly obeyed, every minute for crying in a bucket. No, but she made, she's making a bold, courageous decision. And of course, there were highs and lows and mistakes and sin, but she believes, and nothing can ever, ever erase that. She set herself apart. Set yourself apart. And as you come to the Lord's Supper today, realize as you dip the bread into the cup what you have right there. 
You have a picture of Jesus pouring himself out like she poured out the expensive ointment. Mary poured herself out, not just the perfume, because she saw him pouring himself out. And later on the cross, he literally said, while hanging there, I'm poured out. When she looked at the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus, she was transformed into his likeness. Holiness comes from the gospel, and more specifically, from the beauty of watching it pouring itself out. The very same thing is available to you and me today. We can be like Mary and pour ourselves out for our Savior and live his life of holiness. You know, in the Bible, there really is something about Mary. In fact, about all of the women named Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, credible paradigm of faith. Mary Magdalene, amazing redemptive story. And now Mary of Bethany. You really can't do any better than building your life on what they were like if you want to become somebody Jesus was like. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.